0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love that's awesome, compassion. That's one of our points uh, today in God's Word. So I want you to open your Bibles uh, to First Timothy chapter 5. We are walking through Paul's first letter to Timothy. If you're, if you're new today, it's typically what we do. We're kind of walking through books of the Bible uh, verse by verse. And so we have come to First Timothy 5 this morning, and Paul's talking about life in the body. He's addressing different parts of the body of Christ and the health of the body overall. And so we're going to cover all of chapter uh, 5 today. So let's go ahead and get into God's word. Follow along in your copy of God's word and let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Follow along in your copy of God's word as I read. Paul says, Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, Older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers, However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow is to be enrolled in the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old. Has been the wife of one husband and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. But refused to enroll younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They are not only idle, but are also gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want Younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. The elders, who are good leaders, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue, to drink, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. Lord, and as we look at, at just different parts of the body of Christ, we, we, we want the whole body to be healthy. And so, Lord, there are things that we can take from this for our own lives, for the church. Lord, we, wanna, we want to be healthy as individuals, healthy corporately, that we might magnify the glory of Christ. May he be lifted up today as we dig into your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So our our human bodies are are made up of of various kinds of of systems. We have a nervous system, a circular system, a muscular system skeletal system, an immune system, and others. And these systems in our body are not independent from one another. They're interdependent. If something happens to to one, the whole is impacted. What Paul is doing in chapter 5 is he's giving Timothy instructions about how to address the different parts of the body of Christ Christ so that the whole body can be healthy. So what's he talking about here? First of all, relationships in the body. Let's check out verses 1 and 2 says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Now, this tells us something about the church in Ephesus where Timothy is. It tells us that it was a multi-generational church, just like ours. There were older people and younger people. And both can be blessed by one another. Younger people can be blessed by the wisdom and the life experiences of older people. Older people can be blessed by the vibrancy of younger people. And there's this beautiful image here of the church as a family. And every one of these relationships, he's talking about the fact that we are to be a family family. To one another. In chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul said the church is God's household. The church is the family of God. So, how is Timothy, as a young man, to treat and relate to? various people in the family and there are things that we can gather from this and apply not only if you're a young man, but you know, in, in general. Lots of wisdom here about how we're to treat one another in the family of, of God. So first of all, he talks about how to treat older men in verse one. He says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. How should a young man treat his 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 dad? Well, he says, "Do not rebuke an older man." That that word "rebuke" is very, very strong. It it, it means uh, with a, a, a harshness. Um, you, you should not speak to uh, to your to your to your dad like like that. You know, some years ago, I was uh, ministering to to a, a family, and I was doing a funeral for this family, and and uh, you know, you know, I I. I could not I just remember it after all these years the way that this this young man was speaking to his father who you know who had just lost his wife and this guy's mom and this young man was just didn't did not go to our church but, but this this young man was just speaking to his father just with such inner, such an inappropriate way just a very very harsh Kind of a way. And it was just cringy. I mean, I remember it after, after all these years. So, so inappropriate. He says, no. He says, you should exhort an older man like a father. That word exhort means to, to come alongside and to gently encourage. And then he talks in verse 1 about how to relate to younger men. He says, relate to them as brothers. So how do brothers relate to one another in a healthy family? There's a camaraderie, right? There's fun. Uh, occasionally, you get on each other's nerves, but you, you, know, you work it out, and you're there for one another. You have each other's back. There's such a need for this in our culture among younger men. Younger men in our culture are so lonely and disconnected. The church is where you should find a band of brothers. And then in verse two, he says to treat older women as mothers. So how should you treat your mom? With tenderness, with care, with respect, with love, with patience. And then in verse two, he tells Timothy to treat younger women as sisters with all purity. And that word all means complete Treat them with complete purity. This goes along with what Paul says in Ephesians five and verse three, when he says to the church, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. Now again, this is such a word for our culture today. I became a pastor in 1992, just prior to the internet. And over you know the past twenty-five years, with the rise of the internet, has come the rise of online pornography. And I have watched as a pastor a secret catastrophe take place in our culture, and Christians are not immune from this. I have watched the secret catastrophe take place in ministering to. Uh, to men, but it's not only men, it could be women as well, but the impact, and for the purposes here, especially on the way that younger men view younger women, and the impact on the lives of men, the impact on marriages, absolute catastrophe. And so we need to camp here for a moment. Listen, this is a demonic industry, Every time that you click into a porn site, you are supporting human trafficking. This whole demonic industry is run by people who are, making their, who are making gain out of exploiting other human beings. In many cases, trafficking other human beings. And so when you click into pornography, listen to me, you are allowing dark, dark, demonic forces into your mind and heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5 blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Obviously, listen, this is clouding your relationship with God. And you need to understand that these people who, who run online pornography, they're like drug pushers. They are seeking to enslave you, to addict you. And you need to understand that this warps your mind. It literally rewires, continual exposure to pornography literally is rewiring the pathways of your brain. It warps your relationship with your wife if you're married. It will impact the way that you relate to your future wife if you're single. And it impacts the way that you view younger women if you're a man. Because what it's doing is it's training your mind to view them in a way that is objectified instead of relating to them and seeing them as your sisters in Christ and as fellow image bearers of God. It's training your mind to objectify other people, which is gross. Now here's good news, good news. You can be free from this, you can be free. Romans six tells us that if you are in Christ, Not only is the penalty of sin broken, but the power of sin is broken in your life. You are not a slave to sin anymore. You are not a slave, you are a child of God. You are one of God's sons, God's daughters, and therefore you can walk in freedom and nobility, and dignity. You do not have to live as a slave to sin. Not pornography, not any other sin, not any addiction. You can walk in freedom. And here's more good news. Your mind can heal. No matter what mistakes that you've made, you know, no matter how much exposure you've had to this garbage, your mind can heal as you get free from this. Romans chapter 12 and verse two says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The spirit of God can renew and heal your mind. And part of that healing is learning how to treat others, the and younger women, the way that they are to be treated, to view them the way that God wants them to be, be viewed, which is as sisters. So in a healthy family, you know, how do you think of your sister, right? There's love there, but the relationship is not sexual. That's a whole set of other problems. You, the, the, the relationship is, it's, it's desexualized, there's, there's love, but there's, it's, there's nothing sexual about it, right? And, and so in the body of Christ, as we learn to relate to one another as a family, right, it takes, it, 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 it's showing us how God intended for us to relate to one another. This is really like a beautiful picture, right, of, of relationships in a healthy family, no matter what kind of a family that you grew up in, in the church of Jesus Christ, you, were, you can find a family of love where we're all learning to relate to one another in the ways that God ordained for that to happen. Beautiful picture here of relationships in the body. All right, so second, he talks about compassion in the body. We sung about compassion earlier. So he has this long section in verses 3 through 16 about how the church is to care for widows. Now, this has deep roots in the Old Testament. In the law in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24, we see it in the Psalms, Psalm 68 and verse 5 says God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. In Isaiah chapter one, when God is telling his people what repentance would look like, he says this in Isaiah 1:17: learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So compassion for widows carried over into the early church so like in Acts six see this whole section about how the church is to care for widows how the first deacons were appointed to help that ministry to the different groups of widows in the church so it's not surprising that the church at ephesus had this list of widows that they were supporting and so he says here in verse three support widows and that word support means to support financially support widows who are genuinely in 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 need in biblical times widows were in an especially vulnerable position you know you did not have the social safety nets and stuff like that that exist today and especially widows who were older and without family in the picture and so the church was to come alongside at that point Um, Now, when a widow did have a family that was able to help, they were to step up to the plate and help. And he says in verse four, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. I mean, Paul mentions no words about this. He says in verse eight, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, he says in verse five, the widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. So in verse five, he gives a twofold kind of criteria for the widows that the church really needed to come alongside and help. Um, one was that she was all alone. There was no, you know, family in the picture to help. Um, and then two, these were, these were godly women. These were women of prayer. You know, I think, think about people who are older and, you know, maybe you're not able to do the things physically uh, that you were able to do in the past, but do you know what? You can change the world on your knees, as you pray for others. I think about my mom, my mom was a widow for 18 years after my dad's death, and she was a godly woman before he passed away, but after he passed, um, and especially as her physical health declined, her prayer life just was taken to another level. And you know, only heaven knows, you know, how many unreached people groups have been reached how, how many churches have experienced revival? How many marriages have been saved? I mean, how many lives were transformed because some widow was on her knees interceding before God? The church is to, to practice compassion, you know, toward widows towards uh, people in other situations that desperately need help. That's what Sin Relief is all about, which our 5K was about um, yesterday. And we do that because our Lord was all about compassion. Matthew 9 and verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' people are compassionate people. Compassion in the body. So third, he talks about pastors in the body. In verse 17 through the beginning of verse 22, he's talking about elders. We talked in chapter three about that term elder is interchangeable with the word pastor, same same office. And we talked about the fact that in Ephesus, the problems that they were dealing with there had to do with elders, pastors, who had gone rogue in their doctrines and in their lifestyle. I mean, it's, it's bad enough, you know, when any Christian goes off the deep end, but when it's a pastor, it wreaks havoc. And, and that's what this church was dealing with. And so therefore, you know, good pastors, the, the church was to cherish them and, and honor them, um, and they were gonna have to deal with the bad ones. Okay, so in verses 17 and 18, he's talking about honoring good pastors. So he says in verse 17, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The church at Ephesus had suffered at the hands of bad pastors and especially with bad teaching that was coming from pastors. These guys were teaching false doctrine or in some cases just teaching nonsense. And so Paul is saying here that, you know, when you've got good pastors who are working hard at preaching and teaching and rightly handling the word of God, teaching healthy doctrine, that impacts the health of all of you. You, you want to love those guys and honor them in every way that you can. And you want to free them up financially so that they're able to bless you spiritually. Right? And that's what he means here when he, when he says in verse 17. Look at verse 17. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That word honor there in verse 17, that's the exact same Greek word that we see in verse 3 when the, the, the CSB translates it as support, right? Support widows there. Same Greek word, right? Support, honor. It's talking about financial support. And he's telling the church here that, you know, when you've got, good leaders who are working hard at preaching and teaching, teaching uh, the word of God. That impacts the whole church. If they're teaching a uh, truth, that's impacting the health of the whole church. You want to free them up to be able to do that, to bless you spiritually, right, by freeing them up financially. That's what he's saying here in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he uses two quotes to kind of buttress that. He says in verse 18, he says for the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, that is Deuteronomy 25, four, and the worker is worthy of his, of his wages. Interestingly, that is a direct quote from Jesus, exactly as it appears in Luke 10:7. So the overall thing he's saying here in verses 17 and 18 is, look, you know what it's like to have bad pastors, right? You've suffered as a result of that. When you have good ones, do everything that you can to love them and honor them. He tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verses 12 and 13, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work, That's what he's saying here in in verses 17 and 18. Now, beginning in verse 19, he's talking about the cleanup that Timothy has to do in Ephesus with the bad elders. How is he to deal with that? Well, he says in verse nineteen, "Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses." In other words, you know, Timothy, you can't go in there, you know, kind of willy-nilly, you know, throwing around, throwing around accusations. There's got to be, you know, multiple credible um, witnesses uh, to this. Otherwise, you're going to do more uh, more harm than good. Um, you know, and and then uh, he says, uh, he says in in um, In verse 21, not to show favoritism in this. In other words, don't allow personal issues to get involved in this. This is is really about the truth of the gospel. Um, And then he says in verse 20 that as these wayward elders are rebuked, that it must be public. Now, there's a reason for that. Their sin and their false teaching had been public. Everybody knew about it. Everybody in the church knew about it. And even worse, unsaved people in Ephesus knew about it. How horrible was that? And so he says that the rebuke of these wayward elders has to be public, and there's, there's a, that sends a twofold message. It sends the message to the church that you know this is the church of the living God. It's not a free for all. It's not anything goes. And it will send the message to outsiders in the community that Christians are people of integrity. If we have a problem within the church, you know, we're gonna deal with that in a way that, that demonstrates integrity. It would send that message to outsiders. So in these verses, he's talking about, <laughs> Timothy, here's how you clean up the mess. In verse 22, at the beginning of verse 22, he's telling him how to not have so many messes in the future to, to have to clean up. He says in verse 22, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder. Literally, don't be too hasty in the laying on of hands. Timothy, just because a guy comes forward and says, hey, I want to be a pastor, the church should not rush to lay on hands and ordain that guy. Take your time. Take your time. Observe their life so that you truly know them. And, and, and then what he says is watch your own life. That's the fourth thing that we see here. Watching your life in the body. Remember what we saw last week in chapter four and verse 16? Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. But first of all, watch your life. Because <laughs> if you don't watch your life, your teaching ministry is going to be undermined. Watch your life closely. Look at the latter part of verse 22. He says, don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. In other words, Timothy, you're going into a situation in Ephesus where there's been all of this sin, and as you go into the situation and you're around all the sin that's been taking place, you can't allow yourself to be sucked into any of that. Don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. You know, in college, I was trained as a lifeguard, and I remember one of the things that struck me about learning how to be a lifeguard was the amount of time that they spent teaching us about how not to let drowning people drown us. <laughs> because a drowning person, by definition, is usually panicking. They're panicking, they're flailing. If you don't know how to, how to get out there and, 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 and reach them without them taking you under, that's a problem. And so they spent tons of time teaching us. Here's how, as you approach, a person who's in in trouble in the water, here's how you turn your body so that you can extend help to them without them being able to take you under. Because if the lifeguard drowns, you both drown. And so, Paul is saying, look, you can't drown spiritually, right? D- don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. If you're going to help others spiritually, right, you've got to keep yourself right. You've got to watch your own life. So take care of yourself spiritually. That's the end of verse 22. And then in verse 23, he's telling him to take care of himself physically. He says in verse 23, don't continue drinking only water but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now in chapter three, he already addressed the issue of, of alcohol abuse, right? So we saw in chapter three, in verse three, that with elders, he says in chapter three, in verse three, they're not to be excessive uh, drinkers, not non excessive drinker. Deacons, in verse eight, um, not drinking a lot, Wine, so he's addressed the issue of excessive drinking and two times in chapter three for church leaders. He says in other letters, like in Ephesians 5 and verse 18, talking to the whole church, he says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Right? So that's everybody, right? The Bible is clear, right? For Christians, you know, drunkenness. Alcohol abuse, that's that's off the table. And obviously, there are people who should not drink at all because they've had a problem with it in the the past, right? It's been an issue. Paul was Timothy's best friend. He was like a dad to him. And he knew that that was not an issue in Timothy's life. Otherwise, he would not have told him this in verse 23. Paul knew that Timothy had other issues. He had issues with his health, and in the first century, a little wine—wine wine in moderation—was uh, seen as a very healthy thing for uh, stomach issues and you know, kind of other other issues. Look, I'm not a doctor. I'm not wading into Timothy's gastro issues here uh, this this morning, or you know, pretend to be an expert on, on, on that. Um, but but here's the point that we should take from verse 23. Paul is saying, to the extent that you can, take care of your physical health. Timothy, you have a task to do in the body of Christ. You will be better able to do that job if you take care of your physical body. Now, we know that stuff happens to our bodies that often we have no control over. We don't have control over, you know, as we age, stuff happens to our body, can't control that. A lot of times, even as younger people, stuff happens to our bodies and it has nothing whatsoever to do with lifestyle issues. We can't control it. But that makes it all the more important to control what we can control, right? And Galatians 5.23 says that that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. That applies to the way we treat our bodies, right? And 1 Corinthians 6.19 says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So to the extent that you can control things, right, try to keep your body healthy because that's going to enable you to minister with more energy and vigor in the body of Christ, Okay, that's the the takeaway here. And then verses 24 and 25. Wow, really powerful. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment. But the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Wow, there's so much here. So much here. Verse 24. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. What happened to the Titanic on the night of April 15th, 1912? It sunk by doing what? It hit an iceberg. Here's the thing about icebergs. Nine-tenths of an iceberg is beneath the surface. Timothy don't just think about the sur- what's on the surface of your life. What's going on beneath the surface? What's going on in your heart? Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Christian, how is your heart today? What's happening beneath the surface of life? You know, as a pastor through the years, I've seen lots of verse 24 people. I've seen so many people who seem to have everything together on the surface, their life, their family. You know, every, People seem to have it all, all together, you know. Facebook, Instagram. Right. Everything's great on the surface, right? There was something else going on beneath the surface. There was a, another life. There was a double life. The interior did not match the surface. There was bad stuff happening beneath the surface that later on surfaced. What's happening beneath the surface? Who are you behind the closed doors of your home with the people who know you best? Who are you when no one is looking? I've known lots of verse 25 people. (laughs) Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Wow. Verse 25 people, are like electricity. <laughs> right now, in this room, the electricity is just humming along. <laughs> we don't pay any, t- we, don't, we don't notice it, but you know what, we're really thankful for these lights. You know, we're thankful for the screen. We're thankful for all of the benefits of electricity. <laughs> we don't notice it until it goes out, right? Verse 25, people are like electricity, right? They're just humming along quietly in the background, serving God. Faithfully, right? Maybe a lot of people don't notice. The Lord sees, right? And eventually, that fruit all comes to the the surface. I did a gravesite on Friday for Bobby and Carolyn Horn, members here for decades. Verse twenty-five people, (laughs) right? Quietly loving Jesus, reading their Bibles praying for their church, raising a godly family, quietly making a massive impact on the, on the church, you know, just through quietly uh, tithing and giving offerings beyond a tithe. You're just quietly, quietly just doing their thing, serving, investing in people, serving in the life of the church. No big production, no big thing, just, just quietly humming along, serving Jesus, raising a godly family, and here's their daughter out here. Here's their son-in-law giving testimonies at the graveside. Both, they're, you know, they're Sunday school teachers now. They're, they're making a huge impact. They've got kids. Their kids are serving the Lord. That's the, that's the legacy, right? That's the legacy of verse 25 people, right? That, those good works surface, right? And God sees them all the time. He sees everything. Now, when we think about verses 24 and 25, The truth of the matter is that there's ultimately only one who had it completely together, both on the surface and beneath the surface. That's integrity. There's only been one of absolute, complete integrity who never sinned beneath the surface, never sinned on the surface. Jesus lived the perfect life, the life of perfect integrity. There was never any disconnect between the interior and the exterior. He lived a perfectly sinless life. The life that none of us could ever live. And then he died the death. We should have died not for his sins, for he had none. He died for our sins on that cross. He paid the penalty for us. And he was raised from the dead so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life and life can begin anew. Praise God. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. One perfect life. One life given for each one of us. Let's pray together. Lord, we look to Jesus today. We look to Christ in his sinless perfection and glory. The perfect life that he lived in our place, that he perfectly obeyed your law all the way through his life. Only Christ truly loved you with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor perfectly as himself. Lord, we've all failed to do that. Jesus never failed. He lived the perfect life that we could never live in our place and then died on our place, bearing our sins on the cross and rose from the dead so that life can begin again for us, that life can be made new. That Lord, no matter what sins we've committed, that we can be forgiven. And Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who, who is shaping us, renewing us, forming us, to be the people that you've called us to be, to be more and more like Christ. We look to him. Listen, as we pray today, would you look to Christ? If you don't know him as Savior and Lord, look to Jesus and live. Turn to him in repentance and faith. Say, Lord, I need you. Come into my life and take control. Christian, let, let the word of God form you and shape you. Let the spirit of God yield to his control in every area of your life. Hold nothing back. Let Jesus take command and control of every aspect of life as you live for him. And so, Lord, that is our desire. To be home. God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.